Welcome to the Hellraiser Podcast. Hello there, welcome to episode 20B of the Hellraiser Podcast. (laughs) This is our second part of our interview with Nicholas Vince. Hope you enjoy it. Right, so let's talk, if we may, about Nightbreed then. Okay. So what was your first experience with that? What did you think when you first got the script? I thought this is the most beautiful uh, folk tale, um, fairy story, if you like. There is something very European about it. Obviously, it's set in America, but in terms of Clive's writing of it and the approach to the monsters, um, you know, the monsters are the good guys. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a lot of sympathy shown for the monster, but there's also the, the whole thing of transformation and, and so on, and just very exciting. Um, I'd read the book Cabal, um, anyway, so knew the story. It was fascinating to see how it was being translated, um, mm. how it was being taken from the script to the to the screen, um, and that is always an interesting process to watch. Um, so that was uh, the kind of the initial reaction, and I, and I had lines. Um, that so that was a novelty. Um, <laughs> you know, meant learning learning lines. Gosh, um, obviously not you know, huge numbers, but you know, it, it, and also looking at the script and just thinking, hey, this is a really cool part. You know, mm. this is a really mm. inter. You know, Kinski is a very interesting character, um, and his whole, whole relationship with Pelequin and the the rest of the breed, um, and so on. It was yeah. Just fascinated by it, basically. Did any part of you think, when you were reading the script, how the hell are they going to do this? <laughs> yeah, I always... But then, of course, in terms of the makeup, we'd um, we'd obviously already done the Hellraiser movies. I knew all the guys from Image Animation. Mm. I know how incredibly talented they are. I knew what we'd achieved on a very small budget on the previous movie. Mm. Uh this was going to be filmed at Pinewood. I knew mm. it was a much bigger movie. It was a much bigger budget. Um, and I, I think, <laughs> I remember thinking at the time, this is a logical progression. It's Cricklewood, Pinewood, Hollywood. <laughs> um, it, it never quite got to number three. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it was obviously a very different... Mm. Uh, I mean, we, we'd filmed Hellraiser 2 at Pinewood mm. uh, anyway, so it was, it, was, it was a question of going back there. But in terms of the number of monsters there, and again, as I said, I'm good mates with Jeff Portis and Roy Puddyford uh, and Bob Keane and the rest of the guys at Image Animation. So I spent quite a bit of the t- of time up there discussing with them what the makeup was going to be like um, and working with them on the berserkers um, and trying to make those costumes work. Mm. Um, costumes, makeup. Uh, trying to make those work uh, and what we could do with them and how they would, you know, physically, what could we do because we went up there for a day just to see if we could make them look anything other than a man in a rubber suit mm. um, so was part of the, you know, not massively uh, involved but was definitely found part of that process um, so yeah, the, the answer to the question is no. I assume we we've done Hellraiser. We could do, therefore do now. Yeah. And you mentioned the Berserkers, and, and some of our listeners won't know that you actually play one of the Berserkers as well yes. as being Kinski. Yes, absolutely. And actually, um, 
as I come to think of it, I'm just going back to the previous answer again slightly. We had done originally for Nightbreed, it wasn't going to be as prosthetic heavy, I've just suddenly remembered, because I remember going to Pinewood and doing a makeup test for Clive, um, where the makeup was painted on. Um, so the tribes of the moon were more tribal. It was going to be less prosthetic. Oh, right. okay. It was going to be more, uh, and we ex- and this is in the early days um, when we first started discussing makeups. Clive just got me in as a body to, you know, <laughs> just as somebody to stand there and take <laughs> what was given to him. Basically, um, and I remember being painted from head to foot um, uh, in, to see what. In fact, Clive did some of the painting, come to think of it. <laughs> I remember him standing there with a paintbrush um, to see what we could do without it being such a huge prosthetic budget. Um, obviously, that changed over time. Um, so I've just gone, answered the previous question. I've forgotten the most recent question. <laughs> Which is we both um, have. <laughs> <laughs> it, was a, it was a rubbish question. <laughs> no, it was very, very good. <laughs> It was about you being a berserker as well. It was about me being a berserker as well, yes. No, absolutely. It was good. Um, It was a great question. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Because I can't remember if I'm credited. I don't think I am credited. I'm definitely credited as Kinski. Yes, I play the the albino berserker, if you like, (laughs) out of the four of them that that, that you see. um, Did you say he was the leader? Yeah, I like to think of him as such. Um, the lead berserker. The lead berserker, yes, no, absolutely. Um, and that was, you know, again, that, yes, the, the uncomfortableness in playing that part was it was a complete body uh, costume. Uh, literally, you know, foot, feet went in because they've got claws and, and, and it, it's hands and claws, it's a helmet. Um, with, with, with a headpiece, there's a body suit that is completely, you know, there's three or four inches thick of foam um, and prosthetic makeup, and I sweated horrendously. I remember just being in um, a, a vest and pants and um, being given a bucket to rinse, wring out. Just, oh, it was revolting. <laughs> um, completely. Um, every time they got me out of that costume, and I think the same with the other guys. I can't even remember who played the other guys now. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was a really uncomfortable costume to wear from that perspective. So this was Clive's second film, and it's yes. quite a bit bigger than Hellraiser. Yes. So how was he on the set? How Was he very different to Hellraiser? Or? No, no, Clive was... Uh, I suppose my reaction, my, my interaction with Clive was different, because I could speak uh, and <laughs> talk to him about, you know, rather than just being called onto set completely in makeup and doing, just being told what to do. I remember, you know, and obviously at Lions we had more of conversations on, on set. Yes. But no, I mean, Clive is a perfectionist. Uh, that meant long hours, um, long days. Um, you know, we did it until we got it to where he wanted it to be. Mm. Got, we got the shot that he wanted. Um, and I remember he had, a, he had a tough time during filming because he, he became ill halfway through. Um, he had a hernia, I think. Um, I had to take some time off um, after I'd finished my filming. Uh, it, it was later on, I remember. Um, 
But yeah, no, on set it, it was it, Clive's just Clive. Clive can never any be, be anything other than just Clive, mm-hmm. really. <laughs> and um, you said you like Kinski as a character. Mm-hmm. I mean, what is it about this character that you that you like? I think what I find interesting is he is, yeah. You know, his first line is "move or I'll slit your throat," and then the next thing is saying, "Hold on, no, you can't eat him." Uh, you, mm-hmm. No, we mustn't do this. That's a bad thing. Um, there's something very... He acts tough, and he really isn't that tough. There's a lot of um, humanity. I think um, the, the thing about the Nightbreed are that there are, um, there are people who've transformed into monsters. They're perceived as monsters through, in inverted commas, birth def- you know because they look odd they look strange mm. in, the, in the same way that the elephant man looks strange mm. uh, and therefore is classified as a monster but there are shape shifters there werewolves there are people you know who um, and I think at the time we didn't know the backstory that Clive then later wrote for the book of, of, of the Nightbreed Chronicles of, of all the different characterizations. Mm-hmm. So didn't have the backstory when I when we were actually doing the film. We just had the script that was in front of me, which is where you usually were. Yeah. Um, Did you come up with your own backstory in your own mind? Not so much. Um, I suppose I probably kind of thought about it. I remember at drama school being taught, you know, going onto the set and thinking about, well, this is not just a set, this is your home, why am I here? This is, you know, I've got to be comfortable here. This is a uh, a place where he lives uh, and, and so on. But as to how he got there, no, I, I don't mm. remember. Mm. I, I don't remember thinking about that. Okay. And what did you think of the... Your makeup. I could see. <laughs> um, it was, I mean, really, I could see. I was so nice, and it was interesting because of the, you know having to go through the five hours to to get into it. That was the new experience. Um, Neil Gorton, uh, who'd gone on to do Millennium FX and do all the Doctor Who stuff, was the makeup guy who designed all this. Mm. Uh, he was a great guy. He really is a great guy. Very, very talented, obviously. Um, I I thought it was amazing. Um, it was not only could I see, you could see expression. Um, you know, when my lips move, his lips lips move. Uh, when he smiles, he smiles. Uh, you can actually see the humanity in it. Mm. Um, completely different from chattering cinema. <laughs> um, and I, I I loved it. I just thought it was a really interesting image. Mm. So, Nightbreed has sort of had a resurgence of popularity yes. recently. Yeah. Yes, over 3,300 when I think I checked it last night, uh, the Occupy Midian yeah. uh, thing on Facebook. Yeah. And this is down to, um, partly down to a guy called Russell Charrington, um, who's, I think it's Mark Miller, I may have got that name wrong, um, but they've, been, they've worked on a revised cut which is much closer to Clive's um, uh, original vision mm. um, uh, and as close to a, a, a director's cut yeah. without actually Clive sitting down and doing it. 
Um, Have you seen the Cabal Cup yet? I get to see it on Friday of this week. Oh, wow. Um, I'm going up to see Russell on... I'm meeting up with Russell on Friday, uh, who's very kindly invited me to stay um, and show me around Carlisle. Meeting up with him... I've I've spoken to Russell for about 20 minutes on the phone. Um, And I I think you um, were saying he's now got the complete set of Cenobites. There's myself, Simon, and Doug Bradley have all stayed over. (laughs) Because uh, Russell a teach, uh, is a, a university lecturer. Not sure if he's a professor or not. He's a university lecturer, and one of his th- things is the work of Clive Barker. Um, so he's got an awful lot of the original stuff. Um, right. So I'm really looking forward to seeing his home and to seeing this. Uh, and he's really driving this forward. So, yes, and I think it's, it, it, it's just... It is strange how these things happen, how... Works of art come into their own at a particular time. Mm. Um, Hellraiser has gone on for years, you know, and it's, it's still popular, and yeah. people are still interested in it, and so on. Nightbreed seems to be having a resurgence, if you like. It seems to be having something of a... Uh, it, it's getting a new lease of life. I've no idea why that is, Um Something to do with the world, something to do with monstrosity mm. and the way we think of monsters. Um, the original story before it was made into a stalk and slash movie is about monsters, not monsters as good guys, but just monsters as other kinds of folk, really. Mm. Um, monsters who want to live in peace, um, who want to be um, left alone uh, just to live as, as they see fit, which is a lot to do with any society, any tribe. Uh, Clive has always been a big proponent of the concept of tribes mm. and that you know we all have tribes, we all try- want to belong to tribes. It's part of the problem with the world is that we all want to belong to a tribe mm-hmm. because the moment you belong to a tribe, it's great. You feel a sense of belonging, you feel a sense of identity, there's safety there, there is a support network, There, are, you know, and tribes are very important. The trouble is... If you have a tribe, you then have other tribes. Mm. And the moment you have other tribes, you start getting competition, and that's really yeah. where wars come from. Yeah. The moment that you start saying, I am part of this group, you're not. You're therefore outside that, that group. That's where you start getting conflict, uh, and that's part of the human tragedy, basically. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I think... Uh, you're right in that Nightbreed, it seems... Well, Nightbreed, I think, was so ahead of its time, in some ways, in terms of the monster being the number, a good guy. Well, yeah, I, I, kind of, but... Well, it, I think it was it was different from its time, whereas the monster was the monster. The monster is a good guy, and the monster is sympathetic, has been around for years. You know, oh, yeah, like no, time, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But I think what made it different or the original scripts made it different, was actually honestly looking, really just you know, starting off not with the creation of the monster, um, it, it, you know, it's not with the creation myth of Frankenstein, it's mm. not how the Phantom of the Opera became like Phantom of the Opera, it's not the curse of the werewolf. Kind of mortal was the character. It's about... An awful lot of monsters. I think that's the real thing. Is a hell of a lot of monsters. Yeah, yeah. You know, there are more monsters in Nightbreed than anything else, uh, than any other movie. And I, I suspect that still stands um, in terms of the variety 
of the different creatures that you mm. get, to, even with you know, Moss Eisley and um, mm. uh, uh, Star Wars, it's these are vastly, you know, there's just more of them out there, and so, um, and it is also about otherness and uh, the way we deal with otherness. Um, the fascinating thing I found at the time of doing the movie was that when I, as I say, I spent quite a bit of time going up to Pinewood to seeing the designs and seeing the sculptures um, and seeing all these amazingly talented people who, because all these makeup starts as a, as a clay sculpture. Mm. Um, and it's a fascinating process as far as I'm concerned. And But what I noticed was walking around the street, noticing other people, real life people in the street who have and I don't want to use the word deformity because that sounds negative but have other straight faces um, and what that must feel like again going back to my personal experience of 19 years old they completely restructured my face um, I practically died during that process um, and did the whole out of body experience thing um, it was a major change, and my face looked different. When I came out of that process, my friends, my close friends, all knew what was going on. Mm. Um, when I started talking to them, seeing them afterwards, um, I mean, I grew a beard afterward, afterwards um, because I was having difficulty looking at this new face in the mirror as well. But I remember looking, talking to my friends, and they were always doing this kind of weird thing, almost as if they were trying to see beyond a mask when they looked at me. That they were trying to see the old face mm. that they had, they'd known before. There were people who knew me, as I say, I grew up in, London, in, in Horsham, um, I'd done amateur theatrics um, through that, so I was really well known in the community. Um, and at, particularly at the local Capital Theatre. People who didn't know what had gone on assumed I was a brother who they hadn't met. Mm, wow. It, you know, they just, they'd seen me around, and I heard this from other people, that it, it, it was, so that for me was that, you know, a huge transformation. So doing Nightbreed, doing you know, all the work that I've done in Monsters, which, in movies, um, playing people whose faces changed and so on, and you know, the story of Kinski, as it, it, it turns out. You know, Kinski started off looking, in inverted commas, normal, um, but is transformed mm. to this moon, uh, to this moon face. So I find that whole concept very fascinating. Well, that ties into your story, Look See, as well, because that character was a very good-looking yes. person who yes. then got turned into the chapter. Yes, and I and I went when I recently a few years ago when I put together a kind of a, a, a small limited edition of my stuff. I um, used Tyrone Power. I remember mm. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like the I you know that was the kind of image I had in mind. You know, somebody who's just really really good looking yeah. um, before that. So yes, it, it, Nightbreed and the monsters. It's about otherness but it's also about transformation mm. it's about Boone's transformation into Cabal and how does he deal with that and how does his girlfriend deal with that mm. how do you deal with the fact that your loved one becomes a monster yeah uh, and is accused, is accused of murder and is accused of doing all these things and 
that whole relationship of I love you but you're a murderer <laughs> how does one deal with that situation so I yeah yeah I mean I think there's that's what I mean about it kind of being ahead of its time in that although that story's existed for a long time it was right there showing that at a time when people were kind of maybe not ready to go for it whereas I think now in popular culture there's so much stuff of the monster being the lover being yes. the hero yeah. you know, that yeah. kind of thing. it's got really quite popular but not in, in, in a kind of very basic way whereas I think Nightbreed's a bit more interesting it's more visceral yeah. it's definitely more visceral I was, I've got a book upstairs at the moment that has been edited by Steve Jones a book of uh, horror uh, short stories where he's saying, you know, he refers to Twilight as horror light. Mm-hmm. Um, they've taken the fantastical and made it safe. Mm, yeah. Um, fine, you know, it, it's that, that that's what happens in culture, and that if that helps people, I mean, it's aimed at a very specific audience. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. And it's and it's aimed at people who are going through these transformations we're talking about. Um, I think young people, uh, you know, teenagehood is just horrible. It's just a monstrous thing. It, your body is doing all sorts of peculiar things. It's erupting and it's growing and it's changing. It's transforming. And I think talking to the, you know, some of the fans and, and some of the people who... Got some very interesting fans, um, <laughs> and just remembering one guy in 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 Germany who um, was a performance artist. Who um, his performance is all a lot about piercing and, and and stretching his body into odd shapes and and doing very strange things. Um, I think people really understand that. Mm. Um, it, it it is interesting to see. You know, three thousand three hundred people want to see Clive's hmm. original vision for this. Yeah. Um, how? I say, I, you may have a very good point as to how, how that, why that's happening now, because it's become more acceptable. More, you know, there's a way in there now. Um, I don't know. Speaking of the Cabal cut again, then, mm. what was your reaction when you saw the film originally in, in the finished version, realizing how much had been taken out of it? Disappointment, I think, really is just disappointment because, and disappointment for Clive, mm. really disappointment for. I remember because I mean he, I remember him telling me that, uh, he, he, and he said it before that, yeah, dealing with one of the producer, producers um, or somebody in the production office in, over in America because obviously he went, they edited the movie, and then they told to get edited again, um, and he told the story they was talking to one of the guys in the office who just said you know you know Clive you got to be careful because otherwise people are going to start having sympathy for the monster and you can't have that <laughs> and, and, and his frustration and anger and just you know he's fallen amongst mad people um, <laughs> and I think this is part of the problem with 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 movies and I think uh, because they are such huge financial investments, and um, Clive's spoken on his opinion of of, of what accountants are. Um, <laughs> there is a small place in hell that is obviously reserved for accountants, um, <coughs> but I can completely understand why you know, how that structure works. I, I do want. I don't know. I've never talked to Clive about this, but when you look at Aberat. 
Aberat is obviously Clive saying, "You can't take. You can't do anything with this. This <laughs> is mine. This mm. is this is my vision. This is the purest expression of my vision." Mm. Um, I remember years ago being in his studio whilst he was painting one of the, one of the characters and just and, what, and just chatting to him whilst he was doing it. Uh, and I'm just really getting the sense that this is Clive doing what Clive does best, getting these ideas, these extraordinary visions that he has, out of his brain and out into the world. Um, and with Aberat, you get a real sense of, of what Clive's vision and what, in effect, you can never really do in movies. Mm. Uh, you, can, you can never really uh, get there uh, like that. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that's great that Nightbreed's getting this resurgence. Mm. Um, but moving on from that to your writing mm. over the years, what you've done, because mm. you've done quite a few comics, haven't you? I've done comics. I, I, I just ended a large hiatus, if you like, um, almost 16 years. Uh, so when we did Nightbreed, I got... Uh, when we were doing the Nightbreeds movie, uh, there was a scene that is now back in the Cabal Cut, I understand, which I'm really looking forward to see, forward to see because I've never seen it before, where um, Laurie is singing in a nightclub mm-hmm. uh, and singing the song John Again Angry. On that day, Clive invited all his mates from the comics world, um, including Neil Gaiman and John Bolton. Um, and I kind of got introduced to them, and I got introduced to Neil. The funny thing was, I'd known Neil's name, because he was around on the Hellraiser set, but mm. I'd never met him on the Hellraiser set. Um, again, because I was kept in a room. <laughs> with the other yeah. um, everyone, you know, I never got to meet... I don't recall meeting Neil at all on the Hellraiser set. Um, and started talking to these guys and basically thought, oh, this is really interesting. I've always been fascinated by comics as an art form. Um, and around about that time, they started putting together the Hellraiser comics. Mm. Um, so I just turned up in New York at the offices of Marvel and demanded to see the editor, Dan Chichester, and pitched him a story. <laughs> Wow! <laughs> yeah, it's, it's what you can do if you've you know been in three movies and uh, just just amazing chutzpah. Um, I wouldn't have had the courage these days. I don't think it was just kind of like it was. I was there. I, you know, I can't believe I had the temerity to do it. Uh, I mean, obviously, I was encouraged by Neil and and Clive and just say, you know, go and talk to the guy. I was like, okay, mm-hmm. that's you know, that's kind of a cool thing to do. And I just I just bowled up out of the blue. Um, and, and and asked to see him. Yeah, so you worked on Hell the some of the Hellraiser comics. Hellraiser comics, uh, Nightbreed. Nightbreed, yeah. Uh, did some uh, took over from Dan. Uh, don't remember if I took it because Dan Chichester took over you know, wrote the the initial stuff, mm-hmm. um, and then when I I came in around about issue twenty two something like that. Um, the again talking to Clive what he asked and, and we were discussing I was actually going back to Kinski and Pellegrin mm-hmm. and picking up whereas Dan had ch- taken it into a completely new set of characters yeah um, which is the great thing about Nightbreed because you can there are just 
you, yeah. you, you, you never get to see all the Nightbreed in the movie. Yeah, yeah. There's always the idea that there are lots of other characters and monsters out there. So, but I you know, discussed with Clive the idea that we should go find out what was happening with these guys and so. And again, that was fun because it allowed me to explore the relationship of Kinski Pelequin. Um, Larsberg is dead by that stage, so it's Cabal, uh, Laurie, Kinski, Pelequin, uh, Shunasasi. Um, just exploring that relationship and seeing where I could go with it. That mm. was really fun. It feels, it feels like it must have been a, you know, such a cool opportunity for you, you yeah, know, it is. as a writer and actor. To yeah, to that, you know. well, I think you know, this is one, one of the reasons that I ended up by writing was that I... There was a moment at the premiere for Nightbreed, because um, there was a big West End premiere for Nightbreed, and we had a party in, uh, I don't know if it was then Virgin Megastore, um, on the other side of uh, Piccadilly, mm. and then we walked to West Leicester Square, and they were doing it, and I remember walking into that cinema, and I remember cameras flashing, and people rushing up to me and asking me for my autograph, <laughs> and I also remember thinking, this doesn't mean anything to me anymore. I It was that moment I just thought, I've done this now, I've done what I wanted to do as an actor, I've done here, and this... I'm supposed to feel something at this point. Mm-hmm. I'm supposed supposed to feel excited, or I'm supposed to be feeling massively proud, or or, or, or something. And I didn't. Uh, and then it was at that point I decided I really wanted to concentrate on writing mm. um, more than anything else. And as I say, you know, it took a while for the comics because I think I remember joining what was then the Society for Strip Illustration, and later became the Comics Creators Guild. Um, you know, for at least a year, I didn't have any published work. Mm. Um, I was just writing stuff because it took a while for the comics to start coming out. Um, and I eventually wrote Warheads for Marvel UK and mm-hmm. uh, and other stuff and so on. Uh, but going back to Nightbreed, yes, it was just fun, you know, to take these characters and and, and just explore them and explore that world and. Have a look at other, you know, other things, and start inventing my own mythology as, you know, or fleshing out the mythology. Mm. Um, it, it's just interesting, very interesting thing to be able to do. Is yeah. any part of you thinking I'm just going to give some more for Kinski to do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, if I'm, I'm sure I must have done because um, it, it's what you were referring to earlier. You know, owning the character, the character becomes yours. Mm. Um, you think about it. Um, you know, every actor goes through. Mm. You're asking, did I write backstory? I don't know if yourself as an actor, but do you write backstory to your characters prior to the to page one of the script? Yeah, well, that's it, isn't it? You know, it depends. It depends on the project because I have done before, but not for everything I've done. I remember when I did at drama school, I played some character in uh, The Crucible. Yeah. Arthur Miller's The Crucible, all about the Salem witch trials. It wasn't a major character. He's, he's the father of one of the one of the girls. Um, and I remember writing a letter as that character, as an exercise, and actually each night rereading that letter mm-hmm. as a way of getting me into the character. You know, mm. thinking about it to to bring me back to that place. And it was a fascinating, I mean, Crucible is a huge, great, great play. And I remember seeing it when I was 12, 14 years old. Um, 
uh, done in an amateur in Horsham at the Capitol Theatre, uh, done by Theatre 48, and I remember watching this play and just being incredibly moved by it. Um, but going back to that thing of you know writing and playing with the characters and so on, it is fun to just expand on mythology and, mm-hmm. and stories. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as well, I mean, you, you, you've been in some films that have become epic mm. you know that it, as you say when you when you said oh you know i've done what i want to do with acting i mean really you have from an actor's point of view done you've been in some films that mm. you could sort of say well i don't need to do any more acting now because they've got such a huge following and they're so yeah. well loved and they yeah. were such great films at the time that that like you're like yeah yeah job, job done yeah <laughs> yeah i mean I, it, it, yes and I, and I think it is you know part of that thing is that when you're an actor it's interesting that you guys are, are both actors and writers uh simon bamford is a writer barbie wilde is a writer mm. um i there is something about your voice as an actor you're speaking other people's lines mm. um that is you know and there are some brilliant, you know, people who do this and make a huge uh, make a career out of it. Um, all hats to them. But being, you know, I think very few people are just actors. Mm-hmm. Um, Alec Guinness, I think, probably was, in inverted commas, heavy inverted commas, just an actor. By which I mean he was only an actor. That was mm-hmm. only, you know that. Uh, Listening and read the biography of uh, of Alec Guinness, and having listened to him, he wasn't very confident speaker when he was just being interviewed about himself because he had this huge ability to make himself an empty vessel, mm. which was then just filled and completely inhabited by the character he was playing. Um, and that's a, you know, that's an enormous talent to have. Um, I. Th- Thing, you know, Doug does other things apart from acting. Um, Simon's got, got his own theatre company, and so on. As I say, Barbie's working with her, her um, partner George on a musical, and mm-hmm. you know, and she writes horror stories and horror fiction, and and, and um, has a novel uh, which I think should be coming out later this year. Um, we're creators. Mm-hmm. Um, acting is a tremendously creative uh, process, um, but. It's as Clive said, you know, what's needed of an actor is to do as you're told. Um, he doesn't mean that entirely. Because um, there's so much more. Because these are living human beings that you're talking And every actor brings a different thing. Mm. You know. And every uh, one of the exercises I remember we, doing, we did at drama school, which is fascinating for actors, is we played, we were given the same scene. Uh, there were about 30 in our class, they were split into half, in, into into pairs and it was the Neil Simon scene um, uh, from the, the, the Plaza Suite um, 15 different performances completely different obviously the same scripts but each actor is going to approach a script differently you know that's why mm-hmm. the, the definitive Hamlet is never the definitive Hamlet yeah. um, and such respect for actors who, who, who do these amazing performances but for me um, it was time to move on and, and, and start speaking because I had a conviction that I had things to say mm. yeah definitely so you've sort of um, 
come back to writing now after a bit yes of a after break. yeah nearly sixteen years um, basically I think what I mean it's down to cowardice I think as much as anything else but also I got into writing comics. Um, which is a way of making a living, and comics is absolutely fascinating as an art form um, because you're working with somebody else. It is an art form, uh, and heavy emphasis on the word art, the visual mm. aspect of it mm. um, is it, it, very important. Um, and w- there are times when you were writing the monthly comics, uh, not the Hel- Nightbreed stuff particularly, but the, the, the um, Warhead stuff, the sort of it, where you are so restricted as to what you can and can't do. And what I wanted to do was not what the publishers wanted me mm-hmm. to be doing. And I, it, I, I kind of taken on the job thinking, you know, what I really wanted to do was to follow in the steps of Neil Gaiman and write in that sort of fantastical world. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't able to do that in Warheads. I was more able to do it, obviously, within Nightbreed, and then it got cancelled. Um, and then that, there came a point where I just suddenly realised that, that I could not support myself from writing. Um, so I ended up by working in computers. I got myself a you know, a day job um, out of sheer poverty. Um, now I'm coming back to it. Um, it's a strange and exciting world again. <laughs> um, I am writing. Um, I'm having to relearn to write. I'm having to, you know, and I need to be a better writer than I was before in, in, in many ways. Um, it, it, it is all... I mean, we are talking to me literally like a week after I left work, mm-hmm. uh, full-time work, after 16 years. So it is all rather strange and marvellous and exciting and just a little bit scary. Yeah. Um, but more than anything else, exciting. And, and I'm pleased with the, you know, the, the ideas that are coming forward. So the, what I'm concentrating on now is a collection of short stories. Mm-hmm. The title, I've got a title at least. Um, <laughs> the the title is What Monsters Do. The tagline, the, the theme of this is it is not our flesh, it is our acts which make us monsters. Mm-hmm. Right, okay. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, the, some of the monsters that I'm writing about are not supernatural monsters. Uh-huh. Um, at least one of them is just a really ordinary guy. But what he does is monstrous, uh, or his desires are monstrous, um, in inverted commas. It, and I think that's what I'm finding really interesting and in writing about. I don't think it's, it's not, you know, it, is it just coincidence that Nightbreed is happening around, which is obviously all about monsters. I've always been fascinated by monsters. Um, when I grew up, I was scared of the dark. I think I was probably scared of the dark until I was in my 20s. <laughs> um, and one of the things that I helped help me sleep through the night is, in those days, you used to have monsters of movie land models. Um, and I had three of these figures. And they had glow-in-the-dark, and glow-in-the-dark hands and heads. And they were about 12 inches, mm. uh, 9 inches uh, tall, these figures. And I had Dracula, Dracula, the Wolfman, and Phantom of the Opera, all at the end of my bed on a shelf at the end of my bed. Mm. And I thought I had seen those movies when I was in my early teens, and 
really understood that the monsters are the good guys. Mm. The monsters are the victims in these movies, in many senses, less so perhaps Dracula. Um, <laughs> but there is definitely a melancholy about Dracula. Um, and these things were there. That, you know, and, and if I knew that those monsters were there and they were on my side, therefore whatever else came up in my imagination or you know, in the night or I thought might be there, these guys were on my side. Mm. So I've always been fascinated by monsters and what we regard as monsters and the supernatural and, and so on. Mm. I mean, I was just going to ask, do you think, I mean, you've kind of answered this question already, sure. but do, do you think you have any particular themes that you hear in your writing that seem to crop up all the time or, or things that you often go back to in, in writing? Yeah, can I scare myself? I like a good scare. Mm. Um, I saw Cabin in the Woods recently and <laughs> just had the biggest grin on my face for an hour <laughs> afterwards because I just thought it was extraordinary. Um, and I love the nod to Hellraiser. And it's just, <coughs> just brilliant. So much fun. Just so much fun. And scary. Yeah. Um, you know, really thoroughly good scary. Other things that have come... Yeah, I think what I found really interesting is... is, is uh, again, approaching this is kind of scare myself. Um, I was thinking, of, I, I was came up with a new st story last night, last, um, yesterday evening, and, and made myself jump when I thought about <laughs> some you know, part of it. Oh, good, yeah, I like that bit. Um, and that's fun. That's cool. Um, yeah, it's the supernatural. It's going back to being scared of the dark, and I realised that I was actually struggling with that and that I was kind of steering away from the fact that I'm scared of the dark um, and because I wasn't sure how much I wanted to go there mm. and realised last week that I'm actually going to have to go there. Yeah. A lot of, I've heard other people saying, you know, writing is therapy for people. Um, it's a way of, you, you know, you write out the things that you're, you're, you're struggling with, you're dealing with and so on. So I think... This is one of the things that interests me is that I'm I'm dealing with my own monsters um, and going back to being a teenager and and watching my nephews and nieces grow has been quite fascinating over the last you know the, the eldest is in her twenties now the youngest is just coming up to nine um, and I find it really interesting having watched them going through what I went through all those years ago mm -hmm. and reminding, you know, and, and, and what their interests are and so on. And I was always a strange kid and I was being <laughs> bullied at school and I was, I was not the same as other people um, for various reasons. And that sense of otherness I referred to earlier on, I think that's probably what always going to, is always going to drive my work. Mm. Uh, in exploring, exploring the otherness um, about our own lives and everybody else's life. Um, so, yeah. Mm. So, what, what's the plan with this? When can we expect story? to see When can you see it? Okay, now so we're all excited. Now we're all excited. <laughs> I know, absolutely. Okay, well, as a taster <laughs> and republishing Beast in Beauty, mm -hmm. uh, a story I did with uh, John Bolton mm -hmm. in Fear magazine, um, I just got an email from John last night, um, or from Liliana, his wife, um, saying he's quite happy for me to... 
my aim and, and the sheer reason for putting it out on Kindle. Sorry about your Kindle. I know. Hopefully you'll get it back. My Kindle's damaged. Hopefully you get it. Um, it's purely is a technical exercise, uh, really, to get it out on Kindle and mm-hmm. just go through that because this is what has really changed in the last 20 years and this is why I feel confident that I can do this now is that... Confident? Mm. I feel it is possible um, to do this now because I don't have to go through a publisher in order. There is a different route Mm. to market now. Um, That doesn't mean I'm not going to get in touch with an editor and and show my stuff to other people and get their feedback on this. Um, Beast in Beauty, get it out there as a free uh, download Mm -hmm. for people. Just so I can can go through that process. Mm. Just to go through that technical exercise of getting out there, see what I can learn about get publishing on Kindle. And that's where I'll start. Um, the, what Monsters do will be out in summer of this year. Mm-hmm. He very carefully chooses a period of three months. Um, <laughs> um, it, it's going to be in summer. Um, how many stories they're going to be, I can't tell you yet, because uh-huh. I don't know. Um they're all bubbling away at the moment, and their their ideas. And again, you know, this is part of my journey at the moment in coming back to writing and becoming a writer. This is what I want to do now. Um, I've done an office job for sixteen years. I really don't want to go back to doing it. Uh, <laughs> I need That's a to... hell of a good motivation. <laughs> it is. It is. It is a hell of a good motivation. Um, uh, and I and I just feel more confident now than I did then. Um, I feel more confident that I've got something to say. Um, which, getting to the age of 54, is probably a good place to be. Um, and do I really, you know, did I really want to be spending the rest of my life doing something that paid very, very, very well? I mean, which I did, uh, had some notice, noticeable successes in. Um, but actually, no, coming back to writing and having that joyous, joyous adventure. Mm. I mean, I think it's, well, I think it's perfect, really, because, you know, you have a fan base, I guess, you know, through what you've done. Yes. You've, and you've I'm, done work before that people have really enjoyed. And and I'm really grateful for that. And I'm, I'm really, really grateful for that. It's, it's, it's really great that you guys have come. It's, it's strange, but also completely in keeping. <laughs> That I've done two, you know, having not done any interviews for ages, uh, I've done two in the last week. The moment I made this decision, everything started falling into place. It is what Goethe says, that boldness has genius, power and mag- magic in it. If you make a decision, basically, once you commit yourself to a course of action, if that's our heart and soul, what it is you want to do, the universe starts supporting you in that. Mm. Um, mm. And I'm really grateful to the, you know, to the to reaction I've got. The, um, a, a small comic story that I wrote, completely outside the Hellraiser stuff, a, a thing called Suddenly Last Week was put online recently. And I got, it's a, it's a story about small pink fluffy raccoons. Um, <laughs> uh, but again, oddly enough, about transformation. Um, again, just really, really pleased by the reaction I've got. Mm. Yeah, I got to that. So yes, I... I do feel that I'm in a very fortunate position uh, and that now's the right time to really start enjoying writing again and being able to share with people mm. uh, the stuff that we've got to say. 
Oh, that's great. Have you seen the new Hellraiser comics that have come out? There, there's yes, there's two lots. In fact, there's the one that Clive's written uh, or, or, or wrote the storylines for. Yeah, uh, and then there's the republishing of the stuff that the, I did the, as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, only recently, uh, it's only since I had not seen them when they came out, and I'm trying to get get the early stuff. I picked up uh, three the other day, uh, which I've read one of them, and suddenly thought, gosh, um, it's an annual. And there's Frank and there's Pinhead and there's Pinhead mm-hmm. as a kind of a human, but back and it, it's like I've missed an awful lot of plot. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely yeah, need to go back. <laughs> Things have changed an awful lot <laughs> yeah. in this mythology since I remember it. Um, yeah. But really interesting. Um, they got, got Chatterer. Yes, wow. I haven't found those yet. Yeah. Well, they start when they first started. They they're very much a sequel to Hellbound, so it right. carries on as if this was the third film. I, I I need to get hold of these things. Yeah. Yeah. They're definitely worth reading. Then. Right, no, no, right, absolutely. right. Yeah. And yeah. speaking of Hellraiser again, uh, while we're here, have you seen? There are now nine Hellraiser films. Yes. How many of the sequels have you sat and watched? I think a, just a couple of them. They're not terribly easy to get hold of. Um, I certainly watched the third one. I've watched a couple of the others. I, I'm terribly bad. There's the one with Craig Schaffer mm-hmm. in it, mm-hmm. yep. which has got the chattering, the half the chattering sort of like coming up the stairs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I have to say, I think that's a really scary sequence. It is. I, yeah, I it is quite yeah. disturbing. It is really disturbing. <laughs> and and I, I thought, this is really cool. Um, <laughs> and and that's a really good use of chatter. Mm-hmm. I really admired that. I like that. Obviously, I'm a great admirer of Craig Schaffer's work anyway. Um, I, I can't remember much else about the movie um, <laughs> possibly because I just got as far as this really scary bit and stopped watching <laughs> and then... <laughs> yeah and just stopped watching it um, and the one where you go over time you've got the three yeah uh, Bloodline that's Bloodline. the one before yeah, yeah I, I, I've watched that I've that's the so... one with the Chatter Beast with the Chatter Beast <laughs> yes um, I haven't seen the more recent ones um I've certainly probably got no intention of watching number nine. Um, well, number yeah. nine, there's a there's a lady chatterer at one point. Is there? Oh, <laughs> <Yeah>. bless! <laughs> oh, that's yeah. sweet. Oh, that's interesting. Well, that now that's okay. Well, that allows me to very, very, very briefly tell the story of the transvestite chatterer as he was written in the original movie, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, which you never got to see because in the original script, when chatterer comes back at the end. He's supposed to be in the wedding dress that you see right. them enjoying themselves on at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. Um, well, you have the, the veil. You right? have the veil, yeah. but in the original script, he had the complete costume. Wow. Why and was I, that decided against? Then? I can't. I remember talking it over with Clive and just saying it doesn't make sense. <laughs> <laughs> and uh-huh. I, I kind of got into this whole thing of. If the fl- you know if the costume is melded into their flesh, it doesn't make sense that he can take it off and maybe put the dress on, a, a on over. over I don't think that occurred to me, but I I remember having the conversation with Clive and we, and we originally. I, mm. I regret that now because I think the idea of having a transvestite chatterer uh, at the end in a wedding dress. <laughs> uh, as an image is, a, is is something in the movie that would have actually worked I mean, really really well. Um, 
and I, 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 you know, and as I think more and more about that with that veil <laughs> and the and the idea that he's standing there with a posy of dead flowers, yeah, as he comes in like that, and that he's gone off and done this strange that you know he's managed to find this wedding dress somewhere in that house and managed to get himself into it, yeah, <laughs> actually gives a whole new depth to the character that I'd never oh. thought about before. Oh, um, so. Yeah, sorry about that, folks. Um, <laughs> I don't think it was necessarily my idea. Clive must have agreed, or you know, we, it must have come out in conversation. But I do remember getting a phone call saying, "I need, I need your dress size." <laughs> um, it's like, oh, I thought we decided against this idea. Oh wow! Well, I think that about wraps up our conversation with you, Nick. So let me just thank you very much for having us over and having a chat with us. That's my pleasure, and. Thank you for spending so much time with me. <laughs> and we'll let everyone know when your book is out. And yeah. Maybe have another chat with you then. Yes, absolutely. One. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And best of luck with it. We hope it goes Thank really you. well. Yeah. Thank you very Thank much. You so indeed. much. Thank it's you. It's brilliant. Good. So there we go. That was a very nice chat with Nicholas Vince we had. Lovely. Yeah, lovely man. Very nice Thank man. you very much again, Nick, if you're listening to this, for having us over to your house and spending some time with us, having a nice chat. And we hope you all enjoyed it. Now, our next podcast is going to be going back to the roots of Clive Barker's films. We're going to talk about the first two films Clive Barker was ever involved in. He didn't direct either of them, he wrote them. We'll tell you much more about them next time, but the films are Underworld, a.k.a. Transmutations, and Rawhead Rex. Now, you can seek these out if you want to. I would probably recommend not seeing Underworld. We'll tell you much more about that and why next time. But if you can get a hold of Rawhead Rex, first of all, it's one of his short stories in the Books of Blood. So if you get a chance, do read Rawhead Rex, the short story, because that's really good. And then if you can get hold of the film, then do check it out. Yeah, and if you can't get hold of the film, um, do have a look at some clips on YouTube. There's a few clips of Rawhead Rex on there, just to get a flavour of um, the the vibe (laughs) we're talking about. (laughs) Yeah. Bearing in mind, these are two films that Clive Barker has said he hates. So let's see what we think of them next time. It's going to be a good one. (laughs) So thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you, Phil. Thank you, Peter. See you all shortly. Bye. Bye. Bye.